Welcome to Wonders of History, Season 1, Episode 11, The Elephant in the Room. There are some things that just don't change. Violence, conflict, and war. Our capacity as human beings to commit vicious acts of cruelty seems to be immutable, fixed, and lurking over the course of world history. The only thing that really appears different over the millennia is how it manifests and who has to deal with the consequences of society-wide violence. I'll give you a couple examples of what I mean by this. As of this year, the United States oversees the largest drone strike program in history in order to maintain its superpower status and global hegemony. Like it or not, that's just true. Now, in the part of the world where I live, the United States, I don't really have to contend with that reality head-on every day if I don't want to. Hell, I mean, the only reason I know this fact is because I read a couple news articles about it before writing this episode. But there are people in the Near East that live that reality. They don't get to opt out of the destruction of their homes, the vaporization of innocent civilians, the terror that the sound of a plane overhead fills them with. But there are other times in history when the exposure to violence isn't so one-sided as that. What if we go far back enough in history to the point where there were radically different methods of combat? I mean, it used to take more to kill someone than just an Xbox controller in an air-conditioned room, after all. Violence just used to be a part of everybody's life. And that's where we can apply this little tangent to our series on Carthage. Because believe me when I tell you, the Carthaginians may not have dealt with tanks or drones, but they sure as hell experienced some incredible things on the battlefield. I mean, think about a couple of these. Have you ever uh, stabbed someone through the chest with a spear? Or maybe had to row an oar like your life actually depended on it? Probably not. What about fighting on top of an elephant? Or marching without hesitation into a volley of javelins? Or withstanding a horse charging you at full speed? All of these are things that have happened to thousands of real people in the course of our show. But usually, you wouldn't know given how zoomed out we are when working with such few details. This missing human element sticks out like a sore thumb, especially considering how many different wars we've covered recently. And we certainly won't stop talking about war after this episode. So today, we might as well try and bridge this gap between history student and historical figure as much as possible. We're going to get to the heart of the Carthaginian war machine. We'll start off with perhaps the most crucial facet of Carthage's power projection. It's a claimed navy. Now at the end of the Sicilian Wars, we're approaching the period in which Carthage's naval capabilities are truly astounding, really the golden age of this type of warfare. But it wasn't like Carthage just invested all their time and energy into seafaring for the hell of it. No, the navy was simply a means to an end, and that end was money. Like most other merchant republics in history, Carthage had fleet after fleet after fleet to protect all of their myriad trade interests. This system, in turn, had evolved out of Phoenician trade dominance centuries before. So we're going to have to begin our discussion of the navy there. Let's wind the clocks back a little bit. How about to say the 1000s BC? Standout Phoenician cities, Sidon, Eridos, Byblos, Tyre, slowly built up a system of colonies in the Mediterranean. It started with merchants and sailors naturally mapping out the coastlines, finding places to stop for rest or to forage, and setting up guard outposts to keep these common routes secure for future travelers. Then, as we discussed in episodes 1 through 3, people escaping troubles back home or looking for opportunities abroad would eventually settle down at well-frequented points along these routes. Trade settlements emerged, and thus so did bastions of Phoenician culture that remain with us today in the form of Tophet sites. Over time, the Phoenician cities, especially Tyre, amassed great trade fleets in the name of trade protectionism and war, which was usually tied to trade protectionism. 
Come the late 800s BC, Carthage was founded, and with such a strategic location, right on the crossroads between the Tyrrhenian and Iberian trade routes, it must have had to build up its own war fleet to match a vast trade fleet. And then, guess what happens when Tyre's global influence wanes in the next 200 years, and Carthage incorporates the former colonies of the West into a proto-empire? Well, that policy of trade protectionism only intensifies, as they now directly control the ports of Lyxis, Motia, Gadiz, Utica, and more. So when one of these sort of historical feedback loops, they have to keep building up their fleet, and the cycle just repeats from there, until what do you know, folks? You have a formidable navy in control of the western Mediterranean. And this process is precisely why historian Serge Lancel's comparison of Carthage to 1600's Venice is such an apt one. You can trace the development of both back to this sort of proto-mercantilism. So there's your sort of big picture description, hope I didn't bore you too much, but what if we want to zoom into the everyday minutia? I mean, what did all this look like? How did it function? Well first, we should highlight one of the many advantages that the Carthaginians inherited from the Phoenicians. Navigation. The Phoenicians excelled at navigation. They would use natural landmarks and later settlements to sketch out coastlines, a lot of which probably got passed down through oral tradition and collective memory, by the way. And now is a good time to point out that in this earlier period, sea travel was usually done with land in sight. Ancient vessels did not fare too well against harsh storms or deep waters. That will start to change, but for now, nautical expeditions would be conducted along coasts, strictly. The Phoenicians also took the science of astronomy, from the more inland Canaanite cities, who got it from Babylon, and applied it to their own purposes. I actually mentioned this in episode 1, but a common Phoenician trick was to use Polaris, a circumpolar star in the constellation Ursa Minor, or the Little Dipper, to orient themselves without a compass. See, Polaris is circumpolar, meaning that you can see it in the night sky all year. Combine this with the fact that it hovers right over the North Pole, and you have a constant method of checking which way is north. Cool stuff, right? But then that all begs the question, how did the Phoenicians develop all these navigation skills? Well, they had a head start, of course. See, there was always something special about those Phoenician ships. The first incarnation of them that we now classify are called Vessels of Tarsus. Now, the name Vessels of Tarsus comes to us from the Hebrew Bible. Tarsus was an ancient city on the coast of modern-day Turkey, which you'll note was the area around where the Phoenicians first monopolized the tin trade. So it falls that these so-called ships of Tarsus were actually just Phoenician trade ships of a similar design that the merchants of Tarsus often encountered, and then all that speculation made its way into the Hebrew Bible. Unfortunately, we can't really say much about what this design of the ship of Tarsus was, although we may have found some fragments of one, but only time will tell. We can at least conclude for now that they had rounded hulls, which was cutting-edge technology that allowed them to hold up better in choppy waters, and were built from cedar that was so abundant in the groves of the Levant. But in the next couple hundred years, a new model of ship, replaced the antiquated ships of Tarsus. The Greeks called it the Galus, which is actually where the word galley comes from. Now, the Galus was just a type of Phoenician vessel particular to this region. It wasn't actually the first incarnation of the galley. That term is used much more broadly and would even apply to those aforementioned ships of Tarsus. The Galus, particularly, was larger and longer giving plenty of room to store trade goods with a rounded hull and a single row of oars on each side. And although it may seem surprising to us, that was it. There was no sail. This goes back to the same reason why ancient peoples initially stuck to coastlines. They just didn't trust the sea that much, and that included harnessing the power of the wind. For now, at least. So it was only until about a century later, around the 800s to 700s, that masts and sails were included on most ships. The addition of masts also correlated with an increase in width, 
making these like the ancient Phoenician equivalent of like a freighter or something. Wouldn't part of you just do anything to go back in time and stand in a harbor full of these spectacular works of engineering? Okay, so big ships from this time period aside, let's say you were a member of the Punic diaspora during the golden age of the Tyrian colonies, but you weren't some big merchant or explorer. You couldn't afford a bulky old Gagos, and you probably had no use for one. So what kind of ship would you use instead? Well, chances are you were using some sort of craft called a hippos. The term describes a variety of smaller transport ships, probably used by a lot of fishermen, small-time merchants, and militaries. But no matter what purpose a particular hippos served, they all usually looked like a giant canoe, much longer and wider though, with both a peaked bow and stern, making them directly symmetrical. This is an episode where I would really, really recommend looking this stuff up. And don't worry, in due course, there will be somewhere I can post pictures of everything we talk about on the show. Stay tuned. But now that we've covered the origins of Phoenician seafaring, let's move on to the more exciting phase, the warships. The first Phoenician ship that was specifically made to be a warship was, of course, the Pentaconter. Now, for some of you, that word may be familiar. For others, not so much. I've mentioned Pentaconters a couple times early on in the season, but I haven't really explained what exactly they were in too much detail. So now is obviously the time to do that. A Pentaconter is quite long and is generally thinner than a Galos or a merchant ship. It has a low bow with a sharp point for ramming purposes and a high stern that keeps the command staff secure from missile fire. And this would be an opportune time for me to mention uh, some nautical terms here. So bow is the front of the ship, the stern is the back of the ship, and then port is left and starboard is right. The ship had 50 oars, hence the name Pentaconter, with 25 oarsmen on each side. And of course, in the middle of the ship was a mast and sail in the event that fair winds could replace the rowers. The Pentaconter had a great run in the ancient world. It was the ship used during the early colonial days of Carthage, as well as by those Phoenician explorers that we talked about back in episode 3. You know, the ones that circumnavigated the entire continent of Africa on the orders of an Egyptian pharaoh. And even in later centuries, deep into Magnet rule, the Pentagotter still lined the ranks of Carthage's many fleets. But let's backtrack just a little to around the 700s BC, because it was then that the Ionian Greek cities off the coast of modern-day Turkey would develop a technology fated to revolutionize ancient warfare. What else could it be but the birth of the Byreme? Now the difference between a Byreme and a Pentagotter is quite simple. It's literally just an extra floor. No giant catapults, no fancy bells and whistles. A bireme just allows for a second row of oarsmen to work each side. It even had the same shape as a pentaconter, with a low pointed bow for ramming other ships, as well as a sail. But despite how obvious and straightforward this design change seems, it opens the door to a much more profound engineering challenge. It's one thing to just double the amount of oarsmen on your ship, but that kind of begs the question, what if you tripled it, or quadrupled it, or quintupled it? And so, for the rest of antiquity, the crux of naval innovation, besides a few detours here and there, is how much bigger, stronger, and faster can we keep building these ships? That little Ionian Greek edition paved the way for the golden age of ancient naval warfare. Case in point, Fast forward to the 500s BC. The trireme spread throughout the collection of maritime superpowers in Phoenicia. They're often credited with actually inventing it. The trireme took the same spirit of one-upsmanship as the bireme and just slapped a third story of rowers on top, giving each ship a crew of 200 sailors. This was kind of the sweet spot of ancient shipbuilding. It took a while to top. Thanks to all the extra rowers, these vessels were fast and maneuverable enough to be in high demand, but also not too ridiculously difficult to mass-produce. In fact, the Trireme remained the staple ship of Carthaginian fleets from their colonial origins 
all the way to the height of their empire. So to give you some perspective, let's go back to the Battle of Alalia in 535 BC. Remember that one? We talked about it in episode 4, but I'm not sure how many people are going to recall because it was a pretty fast-paced overview. Well, that was the one where a Carthaginian fleet teamed up with an Etruscan fleet to take on Greek pirates from the Corsican settlement of Alalia. We don't have any knowledge of the tactics or movements employed by any of the belligerents, but we do know that those fleets were made up of biremes and pentaconters. And once we get to Hamilcar Mago and his descendants, that all starts to change. All seven of the Sicilian Wars, which started in 480 BC, so 50, 60 years after Alalia, were fought with triremes. This design was so elegant and powerful that it survived 200 years of ruthless conflict. Even in the mid-300s, when the Carthaginians put the first quadriremes to use, the triremes still held up right alongside them. And this even remained the case when Dionysius I, our favorite tyrant of Syracuse's rapid military industrialization effort in between the Second and Third Sicilian Wars, churned out the quinquireme. It was only during the Punic Wars, a little over 50 years out from where we are in our narrative, that quadriremes would replace triremes as the standard vessel in the Carthaginian navy, and then quinquiremes would be mass-produced on the side. And if you're starting to catch on to the lingo, you can probably tell that the Latin root right in front of each ship name indicates how many rows of oarsmen are stacked on top of each other. So quadrireme, quad, four, quinquireme, quin, five. You get the idea. This is also probably a good time to point out that I do literally mean stack here. These additional floors that get added onto ancient ships over the years are not actually the size of an entire floor. So while the quinquireme was significantly taller than the trireme, it's not like it was five stories tall or anything. Carthaginian scholar Serge Lancel, who studied these ships sometimes firsthand as an archaeologist, so I'll definitely take his word for it any day, points out this dilemma quite eloquently. So I'll let him clear up any misconceptions you might have. And just a heads up, if you actually want to buy this guy's work, uh, Lancel is French, so you're going to have to buy an English translation. Quote, The total number of men carried on this type of ship, including the marine infantry who were on deck, is about 300. The essential crew members were on the rowing benches, but how were they arranged? The solutions put forward betray the confusion of the specialists. The very word quinquireme, if one understands it as one does trireme, suggests a ship with five superimposed rows of oarsmen. This would seem impossible, for the stability of such a vessel would be more than upset by its height above the waterline, to say nothing of the steep and extremely awkward angle the uppermost oars could create with the surface of the water. The solution arrived at is that of ships with two superimposed benches of oarsmen, one with two rowers per oar, the other with three, end quote. So to clarify what he's saying there, there aren't like five whole sets of oars working in tandem on each side. That would be madness. Instead, we have a couple men rowing a long oar below deck, while above them, the rest would row an even longer oar on a series of benches. It sure was hard work being a rower, but we'll get to that in just a sec. In the meantime, though, I want to point out that a lot of these ship blueprints are very hard to describe, so if you're at all confused, I would advise, again, to go Google this stuff for yourself. And eventually, yes, we will get that social media presence. It's coming. Okay, but there's one more thing that we just need to talk about before we move on from the pedantic little details of ship design. And that's how these ships were actually constructed. It's something interesting to ponder, right? I don't know how many of you out there are carpenters, but if you are, think about the coolest thing you've ever made, and then imagine doing it without any power tools. I know I couldn't do that. And these people weren't just making lawn chairs or fences or anything. We're talking about massive ships that had to house hundreds of people and carry literal tons of supplies. Carthaginian shipbuilding was indeed on the cutting edge. The famous man-made dual harbor of the city, known to us as the Kothon, was capable of producing a fleet of 200 ships 
in just several months. And we've already seen them do it time and time again in our episodes on the Sicilian Wars. Remember that in the lead-up to the First Battle of Himera in 480, Hamilcar Mego had 200 ships built or commandeered for his invasion. Think about that number for a second. Could you imagine being in the same space as 200 of these ships? What would it take to build all that? Surely you'd need to really industrialize the process, right? Well, as it turns out, an industrialized process is exactly what the Carthaginians have going for them. Inside the Kothon, there were dozens of separate dockyards where ships were assembled, and we even have some clues as to how it all went down. Now, the reason that we have all this is actually a really good story, so I'm going to tell it. See, in 1971, some divers off the coast of Marsala in western Sicily encountered two submerged ships on the seafloor. Upon further inspection, these two ships turned out to be much older than expected. In fact, both were of Carthaginian origin. One was determined to be an ordinary trade ship, but the other turned out to be a legendary find. It was a Carthaginian heavy warship, a quinquireme dated to the 200s BC. And fun fact, by the way, there was once a great city close to Marsala, and that city now just a village in the outskirts, was Lilibium. All those pieces are really starting to come together now, huh? Although it wasn't fully intact, a crew of researchers managed to extradite it and build a reconstruction that serves as the basis for pretty much everything I'm about to tell you now. In the yards of the Kothon, the shipwrights would begin with the keel, the very bottom of any vessel. Next, they moved on to each side, adding paneling that would eventually become part of the hull that remained underwater. After this, a series of intricately crafted planks would be nailed together, building up the sides until they reached a sort of wall that stopped water from splashing onto the deck. When I say intricately crafted, I really mean intricately crafted. Evidence from the Marsala ship clearly demonstrates that the Carthaginian ship pieces were not only standardized, but numerically coded using that trusty Phoenician alphabet that spread everywhere. This way, the shipwrights could simply attach each piece by corresponding number. So, yes, in a strange way, the Carthaginian Kothon was the ancient precursor to Ikea. Though, I definitely think what they were making was going to last more than five years. All the wood used up to this point probably pine, was treated with bitumen or a similar substance to create a waterproofing effect. This neat little trick goes all the way back to episode 1 again, where we mentioned how it was invented by the Phoenicians. With the outer frame of the ship complete, all the inside floors and exterior touches could be added, and then the ship was ready to join the greatest fleet in antiquity. Okay, so we know what these ships looked like now, but that raises another thought-provoking question. What did they look like in action? I mean, most of us are probably used to pirate ships bombarding each other with broadsides while someone like Jack Sparrow leaps from ship to ship with his crew with swords in hand. Yeah, it's actually not like that at all, especially in ancient times. See, in ancient naval battle, everything was about ramming. Every position, every delicate maneuver, was all in order to get in a place where you could build up enough momentum to row your way right into the side of an enemy ship. And this had been the case back in the time of the Phoenicians, too. Ancient warships all had something called a rostrum pointing out of the very front of the vessel. The rostrum, usually made of bronze or iron, worked like a sort of battering ram or wrecking ball. When rammed into an enemy ship, it would puncture a good-sized hole in the hull, that only got bigger and bigger with the force of the entire ship behind it. The rowers were then specially trained to quickly reverse and pull the rostrum out of the breach with just ore power, allowing water to surge through and sink the enemy ship and its crew in a matter of seconds. Not fun if you don't know how to swim. So, to use another wacky analogy, yeah, at its core, an ancient naval battle was basically just a really high-stakes game of bumper cars. But there's a lot more to it than that. For one, think about what it actually takes to be one of those marines on deck. 
exposed to missile fire, and expected to board an enemy ship and fight hand-to-hand -hand if things go south? Or what about all the less wealthy citizens below them, who man the oars inside the hull? I mean, I've only been in a canoe or kayak like once or twice in my life, but even that's enough for me to know that rowing isn't easy. And this isn't some one-seater boat we're talking about here, nah, these ships weighed thousands of pounds. Can you imagine the strength it takes for a group of people to row something that big fast enough to ram into another vessel? And there's yet another element to this that I think is really easy to forget from a bird's eye view that history forces us to take. The level of coordination that must have gone into just getting a ship from point A to point B is astonishing. Hundreds of people working in sync to the beat of the drum and the orders of their commander, who has to keep track of where he wants the ship to move on the battlefield. Because let's not forget, the coordination only gets more complicated when you have hundreds of ships in your fleet and you're facing off against hundreds of other ships. These oarsmen and marines and crew members were all citizens, by the way, and incredibly well-drilled in their respective disciplines. Their famous stories of Carthaginian ships just overtaking Greek or Roman ships of the same size and strength because their rowers had such an advantage over the competition. So what were some of the common tactics used to get the upper hand in some of these battles then? Well, one thing that's really important was the missile fire. Oftentimes, there would be ships in the fleet with exclusively slingers or javelin throwers on board, meant to harass the enemy so that the other ships could get in a good position to ram them. And later on, in the years of the Punic Wars, there were some ships that even had ballistae or catapults or, get this, pots filled with flaming oil on board, which would absolutely blow my mind to see. Another practice we know of is called oar swiping. This was when the attacking ship angled the rostrum, remember that's the ram, just right so they could splinter all the oars on one side of the vessel, rendering it pretty much incapacitated. How are you supposed to escape when you can only turn in one direction, right? But if you want to look at things on an even larger scale, there were certain deployments or battle lines that were very, very common in this area of ancient warfare as well. One of them, as strange as it may seem to the layperson, was just to have all your ships form in a single file line, one behind the other. The idea is that they could break through the center of an enemy fleet, fire at them from both sides, and split off to ram the stragglers when the opportunity arose. Kind of reminds me of the Battle of Trafalgar a little bit any of you uh, naval history buffs. Even with all these pithy details, the insight that we glean into what this all would have been like is incredible. And now we move on from the naval tradition of Carthage to the real elephant in the room, literally. Let's go over the Carthaginian army and some of their most infamous troops, slingers, Numidian cavalry, and drumroll please, elephants. Okay, but hold your horses, because as you know, if you've been following the show for the past 10 episodes, I'm a guy who loves me some context. And I think the best way to start off this discussion is with an overview of how the Carthaginian army, just like the navy, evolved throughout its history. Okay, so once more, let's wind the clocks back to the beginning of this series, to the founding of Carthage in 814 BC. At this time, Carthage is a burgeoning colony under the protection of the Tyrian military and fleet. And that means that the original soldiers of Carthage, the direct descendants of Phoenician colonists who fought in the typical Canaanite style with bronze-scale armor, short swords and spears, bows and wicker shields, well, that would have looked alien to a Carthaginian in, say, the 200s BC, hundreds of years later. As the 800s and 700s went by, the population of the settlement spiked, and its culturally Phoenician roots intertwined with Libyan and Numidian and Mauritanian and Greek and Etruscan and Iberian customs and beliefs. And with such a large and diverse array of citizens, Carthage could no longer rely on a clique of elite Phoenician descendants to defend them. The process of hiring mercenaries to do some of their fighting was a natural extension of these colonial roots then. These changes were all formalized by Mago, the founder of the Magna dynasty, when he took Malchus's place as Suffi, 
Carthage, having not yet conquered Libya at this point, relied on both mercenaries from Iberia and Gaul, as well as a smaller citizen army. Go back to those original Phoenician colonists. The Celts would have made good skirmish troops, while the Iberians, who usually came as either swordsmen or proto-hoplites, composed a good chunk of the infantry. Conscription in Sardinia and the Balearic Islands would soon fall after the conquest made by Hasdrubal and Hamilcar Mago. Notice how I said conscription, right? Well, that brings me to a really good point that historian Dexter Hoyos makes about all these so-called quote-unquote mercenaries, especially the ones from Iberia and the Mediterranean islands. The reason that the term mercenary gets thrown around so often when describing the Carthaginian military is because that's just kind of what the Greeks called them. Our idea of a mercenary, though, a soldier of fortune willing to fight for whatever side is offering the most, is not all that helpful to our understanding of who these so-called mercenaries actually were. In reality, these were usually just conscripts from cities that were either allied to or subjects of Carthage, and thus it kind of looked like they were getting a paycheck to go fight a foreign war. Instead, though, they were members of the empire, and were therefore expected to fight for that empire, in the same way that Rome mustered troops from its Italian allies in the days of the Republic. And the same goes for the Sardinians and Balearic soldiers, and later the Libyans. Now, certainly Carthage did employ plenty of actual mercenary companies, particularly Celts, to fight in their wars, but it wasn't like they were constantly relying on these cynical, disloyal armies all the time. The foreign peoples in the Carthaginian military had lives outside of warfare. They had shops and farms, they had families, they were citizens, active participants in their respective cities. Some of them probably didn't want to be there, but as members of this greater Punic institution, they had to be. It wasn't all about the money after all. As we continue along the established narrative, we reach a point where the composition of Carthage's military shifts once again. See, around the late 400s, Carthage, under the sway of Hasdrubal and Hamilcar Mago, broke free from the unequal treaties thrust on them by the Libyans, and pushed pretty far into the Libyan hinterlands. Although initially they were only a fraction of the diverse assortment of troops that Carthage called upon from their subjects, this would soon change. The early Sicilian Wars, particularly the second and third, so think episodes seven and eight, required Carthage to put gigantic armies in the field at a pretty unsustainable rate. Think about how many times one of those magnate generals, whether it be Hamilcar or Hannibal or Himilcar, they all kind of blur together, had to raise an army and send them off to Sicily. Think about the plagues that tore through each one of those forces. By the time Himilcar was in charge of the war effort against Dionysius, he was over-relying on levies from Libyan and Libyo-Phoenician settlements. This, as you'll remember, proved to be his downfall. Because what happens when all your casualties are coming from a single demographic in your empire? Well, the people of that region start to get pretty damn tired of sacrificing all their sons in a foreign war. So when Hamilcar shamefully retreated from the siege of Syracuse, he triggered one of the largest revolts in Carthaginian history. Now, we covered how his successors throughout the rest of the century, the last of the Magonids, crushed the rebellions only for their influence to evaporate during the 4th and 5th Sicilian Wars. It was only in the late 300s BC that the newly emerging Carthaginian Republic remodeled the constitution of the army. This was the rise of the Sacred Band, which we talked about in episode 9. But then hopefully we all know what happens now, right? First, Timoleon wipes out that entire army full of Sacred Band at the Battle of the Crimesis. This caused the Carthaginians to scale back on their recruitment of their own citizens, and return to using foreign conscripts and mercenaries more prevalently. Then a few decades later, Agathocles invades Carthage itself, which forces Carthage to draft soldiers from all over the empire, and plenty of Libyan mercenaries too. This whole process almost reminds me of another pendulum, to use that old metaphor, where on one side you have the Carthaginians using a citizen army, and on the other side a mercenary army, and every once in a while there is some huge military disaster and the pendulum swings over to the other side. They just keep bouncing back and forth between the two. 
And although from this point on, Carthage would continually rely on non-Punic subjects to do most of their fighting, the development of Carthage's military tradition was far from over. By the end of the Sicilian Wars, the Punic world had clashed and melded so much with that of the Greeks that the Carthaginians would regularly use Greek infantry and cavalry as mercenary units from here on out. Greek influence would only increase under the guidance of a Spartan general named Xanthippus, who the Carthaginians of the 250s BC hired to reform their land armies during the First Punic War. So with that all out of the way, let's get into the nitty gritty about some of these types of troops, how they fought, and what it all would have looked like. We'll start with the most elite infantry of Carthage, their pride and joy, the Sacred Band. Now, I need to begin by saying that ever since I introduced the term Sacred Band, back in episode 9 at the Battle of the Rimmer Crimesis, I've been using it very, very broadly. The 45,000 citizen soldiers that made up the bulk of the Carthaginian army at Crimesis would probably not have all been considered Sacred Band by either the Carthaginians or even the Greeks for that matter. It would have actually referred to the most elite of those 45,000, the highly trained, heavily armored upper echelon of Carthaginian society. The rest of them would have just been considered normal citizen soldiers. The reason we use the term at all is because ancient Greek historians likened these select few upper echelon units to the sacred band of Thebes, which was a legendary Greek unit from, well, Thebes. So to summarize all this, when I say sacred band, I really mean just the citizen soldiers that Carthage relied on more frequently after the Libyan revolts of the early 300s BC. But the true sacred band would have been those units of citizen soldiers entirely comprised of the wealthiest citizens of Carthage. And to top it all off, the term sacred band is just a Greek invention, so we don't even know what any of these units would have been called in Punic, and we have to be extremely careful not to liken them too much with the sacred band of Thebes. All this basically means that I have my work cut out for me. So for simplicity's sake, I'm going to refer to any Carthaginian citizen soldiers as sacred band from this point on. Okay, so what can we extrapolate about the sacred band then? Well, for starters, we have a pretty good idea of how they fought, something very similar to the Greek hoplites. Remember, the Sicilian wars and trade with the Greek world had brought many aspects of Greek culture to Carthage, which included the fighting styles of Greek infantry. Every member of the sacred band, no matter how wealthy, would have had a spear and a rounded shield known as a hoplon. This meant that during a battle, the sacred band would be in phalanx formation, closely packed together in a shield wall with spears jutting out towards the enemy. Suddenly it makes a lot of extra sense why they always seem to flounder during river crossings. It's pretty difficult to maneuver in such a complex and close formation. If we were to zoom in on an individual soldier in one of these sacred band units, what might we see? Well, the answer would vary, because every citizen soldier was responsible for purchase and upkeep of their weapons and armor. The middle class members of the sacred band probably wore toughened leather or hide armor, perhaps even metal scales or rings if they could afford it. Some might have also carried a dagger or a javelin around with them too. We do have an important aside from Diodorus about the white shields and armor pieces of these units, which gave them this sort of shimmering effect from the distance. If you've ever seen a portrayal of a Carthaginian soldier in like a video game or some other form of media or something, now you know why they all have white armor. The wealthier members of the true sacred band would have been much more decked out. We're talking elaborate dyed textiles worn over their armor or even full bronze chest plates, silver and gold jewelry, ornate tattoos even. In some cases, the skins of large animals like lions. An eclectic bunch of those items would have been worn by the proudest and most dedicated soldiers of Baal Hamon. It truly would have been a sight to behold, but until we unearth a treasure trove of Carthaginian archaeology at some point, that sight will remain frustratingly obscure. 
Speaking of high society, there was another important role that the ruling citizens of Carthage played in military affairs. These citizens would, especially in earlier Carthaginian history, serve as cavalry, or more often, charioteers. This sounds a little bit strange, right? I mean, chariots are like a biblical age weapon. They belong to the old, old world. It makes more sense when you consider that Carthage was founded in 814 AD, a time when chariots were still in common use. Couple this with the fact that chariots were super popular in Canaan, and it seems chariots were just an import from the Phoenician ancestors of Carthage that kind of hung around a little while before they went out of practice. The astute listener might recall that I've referenced the use of chariots here and there. Various magnate conquerors sent them over to Sicily with mixed success, and more famously, the Carthaginian army at White Tunis had a division of chariots that opened the battle with an all-out charge. That's really the last we hear of them, and it's no wonder why. The Battle of White Tunis took place in 309 BC. Alexander the Great had already seized the Persian Empire, and in doing so ushered in the era of Hellenistic warfare. The ancient world had moved on from chariots. Now the cutting edge was heavy cavalry. Carthage was a little late to the party, it seems, but they got there in the end. Eventually, those elite citizens once tasked with riding in the back of a cart and picking off enemies now rode on horseback, charging combatants directly with shocking force. Now we move on to the foreign, or at least non-Punic, units of Carthage's army, starting with one of their most consistent outside hires, the Iberians. It was Hasdrubal and Hamilcar, the two original inheritors of the Magadid dynasty, who initiated and oversaw the acquisition of Iberia. Justin actually mentions the annexation of Cadiz around this time, which was supposedly done to protect the fellow Punic citizens of Cadiz from a native Iberian invasion. The rest of the specifics are hazy, but we do know that Carthage did the same to other Punic settlements along the southern coast of the Iberian Peninsula, and exerted a good amount of control over trade in the various Iberian tribes and kingdoms thus a decent amount of Iberian soldiers fighting among Carthage's ranks were in fact conscripts, rather than what we would consider a mercenary today. And this demographic only increased over time. That said, there were still plenty of full-on mercenary units in Carthage's army, especially later on. Occasionally, these Iberians would either be skirmishers, like javelin men, once or twice, there are records of Iberian hoplite-style troops, which were actually a thing, because remember, there were Greeks in modern-day France that were in close proximity to Iberia. We mentioned these Iberian hoplites in episode 4, because they made a heroic last stand at the First Battle of Himera in 480 BC. Despite all this, the overwhelming majority of Iberians were swordsmen. They were actually famous for it. Iberian swordsmen were usually lightly armored, and most wearing stiff hide. In one hand, they held a scutum, a long boxy shield, kind of like what the Romans used. In the other hand, there could have been one of two things. The falcata or the Hispanic sword. The falcata is a medium-sized sword with a heavy triangular end that was great for chopping. The Hispanic sword was shorter only a little longer than a dagger, really, wider, and completely straight, which made it excellent for stabbing. This Hispanic sword was the precursor to the Roman gladius. It's thought that Gaius Marius had this sword in mind when he reformed the Roman army to use the scutum and the gladius as legionaries. Rome, after all, had been tangled up in a series of messy Iberian wars in the run-up to the Marian reforms. But hold on, we're getting off topic. Just know that Iberian swordsmen were a staple of the Carthaginian army and were present at so many of the battles we've spoken of in all 11 episodes. If we're going to bring up the many European troop types in Carthage's employ, we should also mention the Celts, because they too fought for Carthage in spades, although certainly less than the Iberians. The Celts really started to come into the foreground leading up to and then during the Punic Wars. Indeed, Hannibal, yes, that Hannibal, finally, while well, his army that so daringly crossed the Alps was made up of mostly Celts. Like the Iberians, 
the types of Celtic warriors that Carthage paid to win its battles varied. Oftentimes they were swordsmen, either very lightly or very heavily armored depending on the prosperity of their tribe and their position in society. These swordsmen held ovular shields and wielded straight swords, much longer than anything the Iberians or anyone in the Mediterranean world for that matter were using. Occasionally, the Carthaginians would be lucky enough to get some Celtic heavy cavalry on their payroll, kitted out with ring or chainmail armor and a spear. But then, during the dark days of the Second Punic War, the Carthaginians and Hannibal really just took what they could get. That was the thing with the Celts. They were never employed by the Carthaginians consistently, rather opportunistically. This flexibility in army composition was a characteristic that really distinguished Carthage from other regional powers. It gave their generals incredible skill on the battlefield, as we shall soon see towards the end of this season. Here we arrive at the foundation of any Carthaginian army in pretty much any time period you want to look at. The Libyans. Now, there were usually two categories that Libyan infantry fell into, lighter and heavier. There is surprisingly little to say about the heavy Libyan infantry that we haven't already said about other troops. They fought almost identically to the Sacred Band, and some offshoot of the Phalanx formation with spear and shield. There were, of course, plenty of cosmetic differences, considering these were the men of the hinterlands, usually much more culturally Libyan than Punic. For example, the Libyan infantry had these rounded helmets with a curved point on the top that almost kind of makes them look to me like a dollop of whipped cream or soft serve. Go check it out. Additionally, their shields were longer, in the scutum style, rather than the hoplon style like the Sacred Band. They generally wore non-metal armor and purchased less expensive equipment altogether. As for the light Libyan infantry, well, that was a different story. These guys were pretty much wearing nothing besides a tunic, and had much smaller round shields to keep them nice and mobile. They were equipped with a javelin or two for skirmishing, but when things really got desperate, most of them either had a falcata or a dagger in the last line of defense. The light infantry would typically be out on the front lines at the start of battle, ready to assault incoming enemies with a medium-range shower of javelins. If all went well, they would absorb the initial shock and fall back, letting the heavier Libyans that made up most of the battle line finish the job. This was pretty standard doctrine in the ancient world. Carthaginian strategy varied from other civilizations in different ways than just infantry doctrine, but we'll get to that when the time comes. Okay, we've covered all the infantry, the core units of the Carthaginian army. So what's left? Well, there are a bunch of cavalry and missile troops working in tandem with the infantry, and I think some of the most enthralling aspects of ancient warfare come from these ancillary warriors. Let's start out with a couple units from the Mediterranean islands under Carthage's domain. The Balearic Slingers, for example. I hope most of y'all remember those Balearic Slingers, because I put a fun little tangent about them in episode 9. It seemed necessary given that they were single-handedly responsible for the Carthaginian victory at the Battle of the River Himera against Syracuse. The Balearic Islands, Ibiza, Majorca, Menorca, Formentara, were the home of these inconspicuously deadly marksmen. The use of the sling was predominant in Balearic culture. Theirs were simple to produce. They could be woven out of grass cord or animal skins. They had a pouch to insert your projectile of choice, which you would then rapidly swing behind your head and launch at high speeds into a fleshy target. It probably became so popular as a means of small game hunting, but human beings have a habit of turning innovations into weapons. The warriors of the various Balearic tribes notoriously trained with the sling from a young age. It was their weapon of choice against both each other and foreigners. When Carthage established itself on Ibiza and the other Balearic islands, the best of the best joined their armies. The Balearic slingers could get shots off faster than any other slingers in antiquity, and could hit a target 1,200 feet away. That's about 375 meters for all my European listeners out there. And by the way, the Balearic people keep this tradition alive to this day. 
Much like with the Mongol horse archers, you can watch videos of real-life Balearic slingers, and let me tell you, they are damn incredible. See, contrary to popular belief, ancient slingers, particularly Balearic slingers, weren't just picking up random pebbles off the ground. Their projectiles were handcrafted, smooth, aerodynamic. They were usually made of dense materials such as solid lead or hardened clay. We even hear stories of projectiles with tiny holes poked in them, which would have made a frightening whistling sound while hurling through the area. It reminds me of the Stuka dive bombers used by the Luftwaffe in the Second World War, an act of cruelty against the human psyche. On the battlefield, the Balearic Slingers would be put in the front, even farther ahead than Libyan skirmishers. They would start off with the most range possible, firing at the enemy often until they could see the whites of their eyes, so to speak. Their job was to slow things down as much as possible, and when the time came, to pick off fleeing opponents. Later, during the reign of the Barkid dynasty, we'll get to it eventually, Balearic slingers play another crucial role in many Carthaginian battles. They were maneuvered around the flanks of an enemy, to hit them from a direction their shields and armor weren't protecting. There are some famous incidents in which generals like Hannibal employed this tactic, but again, that's a story for another episode. Next up are a whole different set of warriors from a whole different island. Good old Sardinia. Now, Sardinia was primarily a breadbasket for Carthage during the Sicilian Wars, but it also supplied a fair amount of troops that fought in the Nuragic style. Now, Nuragic culture is super interesting, and I hope we find more evidence of how they lived in my lifetime, but I'm only going to skim the surface for the sake of staying on topic. The units generally in Carthaginian employ were the Sardinian archers, skilled bowmen due to a similar need to hunt for food to the Balearic people. They wore leather studded with iron and carried large bows capable of firing at great distances for the standards of the time. Aside from these Sardinian archers, there were units of Sardinian infantry, equipped with short swords and spears and dressed in these iconic curved or horned helmets. This is another great chance to look this stuff up. It really helps you picture it in your mind's eye. Fortunately for us, the contemporary inhabitants of Sardinia do their best to preserve every aspect of neuragic culture they can. So these warriors are another thing you can go Google for yourself if you're curious. With all the islanders accounted for, let's move over to the manifold lands of North Africa, where two legendary units of the ancient world resided. In the north of modern-day Algeria, from the verdant coast to the hilly grasslands to the rugged wastes, was Numidia, home of an excess of nomadic tribes, settled kingdoms, and everything in between. Here it was not the bow or the sling or the falcata that reigned supreme, but the horse. Numidian cavalry was undoubtedly the best light cavalry of this time period. These warriors rivaled even the skill of eastern horse archers, like the Parthians, or even steppe peoples like the Scythians and Sarmatians. What gave them this deadly edge, then? Well, for one, we can't forget the selective pressures of their environment, pressures that practically bred fantastic horsemen. For most of its history, Numidia was a divided realm. There were a few exceptions to this. We'll be talking about a guy named Massinissa in a few episodes who successfully united many small nations to take on both the Romans and the Carthaginians. Nevertheless, the endless cycle of coalition wars between feuding tribes necessitated many average Numidians to be ready for battle at all times, and their horse-driven lifestyles gave them precise control over their steeds. They didn't need fancy armor or weapons to be effective. In fact, most Numidians wore only a tunic or animal hides and rode without saddles. Think about how good you have to be to do that not just in your equestrian obstacle course, but in a battle, surrounded by hundreds of other horses. We really don't give ancient people enough credit sometimes. The Numidians had two preferred weapons. The sword, used for close combat and to dispatch with stragglers in the enemy line, and the javelin, which they carried several of, usually. At the beginning of the battle, the Carthaginians liked to send Numidian cavalry in to harass especially weak or soft enemy units. 
they would start by riding around the enemy in a seemingly random fashion, throwing javelins and killing them one by one, which must have been incredibly frustrating and disheartening to deal with. Numidian cavalry were also known to engage with the forces in the flanks or rear, disrupting the general cohesion of the army and making it easier for the Carthaginian infantry to come in and break things up. But the most dreaded tactic used by the Numidian cavalry was one they shared with many other horse nomads, the good old-fashioned feigned retreat. If you haven't heard of the Mongols or the Parthians doing this before, I'll fill you in. The idea is you get the enemy all worked up with volleys of javelins, and once their anger at all the pesky horsemen reaches a fever pitch, you start to retreat en masse. Naturally, the incensed enemy wants to pursue you and get revenge for all the comrades you've killed, and so they break ranks and charge, hoping to get as many casualties in the quote-unquote route as possible. And when things get chaotic enough, that's when you let them know that you weren't actually retreating, and you turn around and attack a defenseless, disoriented crowd of troops in a coordinated strike. The usual result is an absolute slaughter, but for some reason, more settled peoples fall for it time and time again throughout the ages. So yeah, these seemingly innocuous Numidian cavalry were not to be trifled with. Hopefully you'll get a sense of what I mean when we talk about the Punic Wars, because there are plenty of stories to tell about the ferocity of the Numidian cavalry in battle. But now it's time to introduce the most anticipated part of this episode, certainly by me, and hopefully by anyone who immediately picked up on the pun in the title. I can't believe I've done 10 episodes on the history of Carthage, and not once mentioned their war elephants. The history of war elephants in the Mediterranean world is a fascinating one. The Carthaginians had known about elephants since they built their city. They were everywhere in Numidia, and Libyan merchants sometimes brought them up from sub-Saharan Africa. Believe it or not, though, Carthage wasn't the first great power to introduce them to the battlefield. No, that honor lay at the feet of the Greeks. One Greek, in particular, a guy named Pyrrhus of Epirus. Pyrrhus, who we will be talking about shortly, imported them all the way from India. Yeah, I'm not kidding. India. To invade the Italian peninsula during a war with the Romans. The reason this was all possible was because decades earlier, Alexander the Great had conquered his way into India, where he was eventually rebuffed by Indian kings with great war elephants in their armies. Trade between the East and West skyrocketed after these civilizational bonds were forged. After Pyrrhus did it on a small scale, with only about 20 elephants, the successor kingdoms of Alexander's empire institutionalized them, another potential edge to get one over on each other. By now, Carthage wanted in on the action, so they imported not just elephant trainers, but actual Asian elephants over from India. That just blows your mind. It actually took years and years for the Carthaginians to realize the benefits of using local elephants for warfare. Or perhaps they simply had to wait for the expertise to really build up. Whatever the case, they started venturing into Numidia to capture North African elephants. And this was extra effective because North African elephants are significantly smaller than Asian elephants, and this made them much easier to intimidate. Trainers would separate elephants from their group with distractions like fire and loud noises, and then restrain them as best one can do such a thing to a living creature that weighs thousands of pounds. Those elephants that resisted were bullied and often beaten into submission until they were temperamentally docile. Then they could be rebuilt from the ground up for warfare. Elephants were trained to resist fire and loud noises, ironically, charge into people, move on command, and even stab someone with a tusk or smack them around a bit with their trunk. So despite what we may think, Carthaginian war elephants were not used for very long by the Carthaginians. Certainly elephants weren't unique to them. Yet because Carthage was so versatile on the battlefield, they put elephants to the best use 
and they made them iconic. You need look no further than the Punic Wars, where they got the most used by the Carthaginians, to see what I mean. Hannibal famously crossed the Alps with war elephants in tow, and although a good amount of them died on the way over, the ones that survived wreaked havoc on Roman morale. Which brings me to another subject. What good did elephants do on the field of battle? Well, that seems pretty obvious, right? They're elephants. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I used to have this game called Rome Total War on disc, and one of my favorite things to do was to send elephants crashing into enemy units, especially peasants, if you've ever played it before, and watch the little soldiers go flying up in the air. And while that did happen, to some extent, in real life, the most prized aspect of war elephants was the fear they struck in the hearts of one's opponents. For me, personally, I wouldn't even have to be that close to an angry elephant to just be like, nope, no way, and get the hell out of there. And that's precisely the reason why elephants were used. As long as you broke up a formation, you didn't have to kill everyone in the process, but as long as you could break it up, everyone in that formation was a goner. Think about how much easier it is for cavalry to come in and finish you off if you aren't organized. So in battle, elephants would be sent in to shatter tough infantry lines. They were trained to charge, and I mean, it takes a lot of focus to overcome the all-encompassing instinct telling you to move out of the way of that charging elephant. And if you didn't get out of the way, well, it was very likely that you would get crushed underfoot as the elephant went rampaging through the rest of your comrades. If the elephants did get into a prolonged melee, they were trained to headbutt attackers or strike back with their tusks, and yes, there is an ancient account of an elephant grabbing a guy with its trunk and thrashing him good and dead. But where were the people involved in all this? I mean, you aren't just letting these elephants roam free in the heat of the moment, right? Well, of course not. The trainers and warriors are sitting right on top. Now, usually, the smaller North African elephants would merely be equipped with a leather saddle that covered most of their torso as well to keep projectiles from needlessly distracting them from their work. Right behind their ears on top of their neck would be the rider, in charge of steering and signaling to the elephant. And this position isn't random either. This rider was in the perfect spot to nail an iron splinter into the elephant's skull, killing it instantly in the event that it went off the rails. I mean, it's dark stuff, yeah. But you really don't f around when you're riding an elephant. Behind this guy, there were usually two to three warriors on the back of the saddle. And depending on what unit they were in, these folks carried either long spears for close encounters or javelins and bows for skirmishing. Now, on the off chance that the Carthaginians had some Asian elephants on their hands, this was a whole different story. The Asian elephants, being taller and heavier than their North African counterparts, could support metal armor and even, get this, wooden towers filled with up to five archers. That right there is the ancient world's equivalent to a tank. I cannot fathom what it would be like to not only see that in person, but to have to face up against it as a regularly sized human armed with a spear. And that's really a sentiment that I've had in mind all throughout writing this episode. Well, there you have it. We finally addressed the disconnect between mere descriptions of Carthaginian warfare and what it was actually like on the ground, or alternatively, on the deck. So where does that leave us? I mean, the Sicilian Wars are over. It's the turn of the 4th century BC. What's next? Well, when I sat down to plan out this series, all the way back at the beginning of this year, I always envisioned it happening in three parts. The first part was the infancy of Carthage, the expansion of the Phoenicians, Carthage as a colony of Tyre, and their transition towards independence. The second part was going to be about Carthage's imperial growing pains, the struggle between Punic and Greek colonialism, and the Sicilian Wars. The remainder of the episodes in the season will be about the third part, 
which yes, will include their destruction at the hands of the Romans, but more importantly, will explore the golden age of Punic culture. So join me as I follow Carthage through another geopolitical power struggle, and more next time on Wonders of History.